Hi guys and welcome back for another episode of The Martial View. This time we are speaking to the fantastic Andy Gibney, who is, uh, he's got a brilliant history in the martial arts through Jeet Kune Do and also stick fighting. Um, and he is also the co-founder and co-owner of 3P Publishing, who interestingly we went for Martial Masters with, volume number one. So the original first print was through Andy. So thanks Andy, thanks for being on the podcast with us, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. For anyone that doesn't really know you, um, do you just want to give yourself a little bit of a an introduction, maybe a little bit of a bio, just about who you are and what you do? Um, well, martial arts wise, um, this is my 40th year of training. I'm, I'm I feel quite pleased that I've actually one reached this age, two still training, no injuries. I mean that's a miracle in itself, and it, that I've got no injuries. Funnily enough, a, what's your secret? Um, I need to know. Uh, well, this is I, well. Interestingly, a, a, an osteopath once said that I had the perfect body, and that was interesting, just him saying that, because that made me laugh. Because <laughs> being five foot seven and having short legs, he said, well, because you've got a compact body, longer bodies tend to have more room to get injured. And so that's it. The other reason is I know how to be lazy. So, so when, when, um, when I have an injury, I rest it, whereas so many of my students don't. And uh, you know, one of, the guy who's trained with me the longest, a guy called Glyn Daniels, is a multi-world champion. Has also got um, a false hip now. You know, he had a hip replacement years ago as well. And uh, and I always told him to stretch correctly. And interestingly, if you follow the career of David Goggins, it's something that he talks about all the time is the stretching. And I'm not yeah. very flexible, but I stretch three, four times a week. Um, and, and I know how to be lazy. And uh, But equally, um, you know, you've got to get the, that mixture of training as well. So that, that's helped me to train a long time. So I started with Shota Can did Kempo, did a few traditional arts for about six years. And I was very fortunate enough to go to a Larry Hartzell seminar in 1987. I met Terry Barnett and Rick Fay, who were, were both helping out that day. Terry mm -hmm. took me on as a private student. And then uh, I was with him for about 18 months and then did three and a half years with Ralph Jones, trained with Bob Breen. Um, and, I was, and Bob Breen was my coach who got me into the British team as well. And um, so I was in the British team for six years and um, got two world silver medals at a time when you could only complete there was only I think there were eight or nine divisions as opposed to 121 that there are now so it was a lot more difficult um, and we were in the early days we were all cowboys in terms of we were we were it was a wild west of a screamer in those days you could you could foot sweep and you could butt strike and all sorts of stuff uh, they took most of those rules out by the time I'd, I'd retired but um we learned a lot and we learned a hell of a lot and, and it was it was a great time. And then from there, I met Danny Gubu, who became my Dossie Paris instructor. And uh, I'd met Richard Bastillo in 1990 and he became my J main JKD instructor. Um, and uh, Kako and, and Richard are now passed away, unfortunately. Danny's still out there winding people up and making people laugh. But, um, you know, I, I still learn from all sorts of different people. Wow, what, what a fantastic background then. So. Where to begin with that, really? Um, I suppose we should begin straight at the start then with, you know, your first kind of martial arts class, your first introduction to martial arts. What made you go there and what was the experience like for you? Um, like most people of my age group, Bruce Lee was a big, big influence, but I was too young. You know, I remember my mum going to see End of the Dragon. I don't know why she did, but she did. I remember talking about that. And we used to have a programme called Tiz Was. 
And they used to show these clips from Enter the Dragon and World of Sport, which was bizarre, really. Why would they show film, you know, these sorts of things? <laughs> and that was it. And then we had Kung Fu with David Carradine, and I'm an Elvis fan. Uh, and Elvis was one of the early stars to put martial arts into, into movies, and I was fascinated by it. Uh, and I went along to one class when I was 15, and my dad wouldn't pay the one pound fee it was. He goes, why are you not paying that bloody rubbish? Because he liked boxing. And uh, so I never did. I went back when I was 18. And, um, and I, how about this? This is, this is how um, customer service has changed. So I went to this class, and it was like, I don't know, 30 people in white suits in there. And I went in, I sat down on the bench to watch. And the class went on for two hours, and not a soul spoke to me. Yeah. And, then, and then when it had all finished, they all bowed and went out and just left me sitting there. No one said anything. So I thought, well, that's unusual. Maybe it's like this, this test you do, like in Kung Fu Panda, where you have to wait outside the gates and stuff. But I went back again and uh, the next lesson, which was two days later. Exactly the same thing happened. No one spoke to me. I thought, this is really weird. Uh, and then I went back third night, and finally someone says, would you like to join in? And I thought, no, I just really like watching people sweat. Because I want like to be joining so, so I, was, I was just baffled by how weird this was. Anyway, I joined in and I thought it was amazing. And it was show to can, so it wasn't amazing. But it was, it was, it was hard work. Yeah. You, know, you know, we talked about flexibility and I didn't have any. None. I was 18 and made of concrete. Uh, but I was absolutely obsessed. And as, pretty much as soon as I could, I was training six days a week. We used to train at home in the bedroom. We, used to have to, we had a single bed. I was living with a girl at 17. And, uh, and we used to pick this bed up, move it to the side. I used to do catters in the bedroom and put the bed back and then do it like that. I, I, I couldn't get enough. How did she feel about that? Uh, she thought it was ridiculous, actually. But she, she was fine, actually. I mean, uh, like most women in those early days, they all left me. So so, uh, so, <laughs> so, so, so I used to say, you know, I was just, it seemed that I was obsessed, but um, I was. What was it that obsessed you, do you think? Was it the movement? Was it the culture? Was it the philosophy? Was it just everything? Yeah, yeah um, uh, it was it was learning. I, I'm a I'm dedicated to learning. You know, even now, you know, my 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 obsession at the moment is Wim Hof, the breathing methods, the cold okay. therapy. Um, very much into David Goggins' philosophy. Uh, very impressed with Ross Edgley at the moment as well. Yeah, uh, the guy who swam around the UK, and I'm I'm always looking for something that adds to what I already know, um, because it is true that. Once you, you've trained for a certain period of time, what you're doing then is you're reviewing the basics constantly. And when, when back in those early karate days, I always used to say, you know, improve your basics. And students, of course, always want to jump in spinning back kick and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And Richard yeah. Bastillo always asked the same question nearly every seminar. And he would say to someone, what's the most advanced technique you can do? And they would come out with, I don't know, you know, like a stick and dagger, it might be, or it might be. Uh, literally a jumping spinning back kick 380 degree kick and, and Richard used to say but what if you knock them out with one punch how much more advanced you want to be <laughs> and, and, and I thought see that's JKD philosophy there that's simplicity yes get it right first time but of course to get it right first time is very difficult so um, Jeff Thompson told a story once at a, a seminar that he did with uh, Neil Adams and um, Rick Young and Jeff said that he had this guy and uh, and and he comes to see me. He said, funny about I said, Jeff, so I'm working the doors. He said, but I'm having a real problem. Uh, he's, he says, uh, I keep hitting people and they don't go down. He said, you know, and I've seen that what happened, you know, he, used to, he was great at knocking people over. So Jeff said, well, we're coming in. Let's, let's work on the pads. If someone you knew, let's work on the pads. Let's have a look. 
So he got them on the pads and literally he said, I did a minute's training with him. And he said, I know what your problem is. He said, what's that? He said, you can't fucking punch. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that's really the essence, isn't it? You know, the, yeah. the, the, what we do, there isn't much to do, really. You know, the essence of all arts is there's, you pare it down to not very much. I mean, after 40 years, I still don't think there's anything better than half a brick in someone's face. You know, it's still brilliant. Um, yeah, simplicity. Simplicity. But yet, the dichotomy is, it's so complex, it's so varied. You look at an inner Santo, who is just the walking encyclopedia of martial arts, yeah. and you just watch him, even on clips we're seeing at the moment, coming out um, through, through, through Facebook and, and YouTube, and, and just... You, you're just baffled all the time and you're intrigued and you want to know this and you want to know that. And then when you look at someone else's modern philosophy of, of a Goggins or a or Ross Edgley and you think, well, how does that fit in? And if you look at Wim Hof, then he isn't really doing anything that different from, from uh, Shaolin breathing and that type of stuff. It's just yeah, his approach, yeah. his cold approach is different. But um, I, I find it really interesting because of the breathing I did when I did Tai Chi nearly 40 years ago you know, and, and the breathing from the abdomen rather than from the chest. So I'm always interested in the new and I see how it fits with the, with the old, um, uh, you know, and I, I just see that perfection of technique is still the goal, really. The Wim Hof stuff's really interesting because quite a few people that I've spoken to recently have really been getting involved in it. And uh -huh. uh, I've just started reading this book as well now. And I tried my 10 second cold shower this morning. It, it didn't go well. I just jumped straight out to be first. <laughs> straight <laughs> well, back to the hot one. <laughs> you know, I'm, I've been doing the cold showers now since the 1st of January. And, and the cold showers are okay. I don't mind that. Um, but when it snowed here the other day, um, you know, on Sunday, I thought, I'm going to go out and I, I bottled it. I was like, no. And I, and I should have gone out because the next day I went out just in shorts, no, no shoes, just shorts, no top. And, um, and I went out in the garden and literally within 30 seconds, I wanted to stay out 30 seconds, the pain in my feet was unbelievable because it's constricting the blood vessels in your feet. Yeah, yeah. And I did, the, the upper body made no difference at all. I wasn't cold at all. That was fine. But the pain in my feet was really surprised me. My girlfriend went out. She stayed out there for nine minutes. Okay, go figure. Uh, she's got tough feet. And she's tougher <laughs> than me, probably, is the fact of it. You know, it's just... Um, but it, I couldn't believe how much it hurt. And so I wanted to go back out the next day, but of course it all turned to slush by then. So if it yeah. comes again, I'd be interested to see how that works because I am intrigued by, by the, the properties of the cold. I mean, I, I run in a hoodie and shorts. I, I don't wear long, long... I saw two blokes in tights last week. I mean, just, just look ridiculous to me. <laughs> shorts and tights, behave yourself. <laughs> You know, so, so, and, and I quite like the cold there. That's okay. I mean, it feels tropical. It's like nine degrees out there at the moment and it feels so warm. It's unbelievable. So, so and then reading Scott Carney's book, that's really interesting where he talks about the brown fat deposits and how that then leaches the white fat from the thing. I mean, I've lost nine pounds since Christmas, so that's going reasonably well. Um, my breath holding is, is just surprised me. I started off at one minute, 27. Um, and this morning I did my best, which was five minutes, 53. This is what people have said to me that I've spoken to about. They said that, you know, they've been doing kind of the minute, minute and a half mark. And then within a matter of a couple of weeks, really, of doing, you know, the deep breathing, the Wim Hof kind of thing, they're pushing up like the four, the five minute mark. And it's like, they're surprised and yeah. they're not quite sure why. That's what they've all said to me. They're not entirely sure why, if it's like pseudoscience or, or what it is, but something, obviously, the results are, are there because they're doing it and they're able to do it. Yeah, I, I also find that 
you're, you're learning to breathe differently because when, when I am not breathing, my chest is still moving. So, so you can feel it, but there's no breath going in or going out. And so that's interesting in itself. Um, so that relaxation when you're in there. Uh, my resting pulse has gone from 63 to 46 as well, which is, again, in a short period of time, it's yeah. very, very surprising. Um, so, so I am intrigued. I mean, that's, that's as low as when I was in my 20s now. Yeah. Have you always been kind of like a lifelong learner? Have you always yeah. wanted to learn new things? You like just investigating different things? And is that what um, attracted you maybe to the JKD? Because it did just take from so many different arts and different forms, maybe. It definitely spoke to me. Uh, it was, it was, um, I, I, I live with a fella called um, Phil Vizian and um, it's his house and he was a Kempo black belt. But he had all the early JKD books. He had the Dow and he had um, the, the Fighting Arts series and he also had the art of um, JKD, the art of a uh, life of philosophy, what is it called? Anyway, Dan's book. And um, the art and philosophy of Jeet Kune Do. And that's the best book I've ever read on Jeet Kune Do. And it's been a shame that it's been out of print for such a long time, but I'm fortunate I have a copy. And all of it intrigued me, you know, and at the back of that book, there's all these names, Richard Pastillo, Ted Wong, Larry Hartzell, all these people. And, and I wanted to meet them and I met them all, you know, every single one of those people. Uh, and they all spoke highly. I mean, when you used to meet Larry Hartzell, he used to speak very quietly. He was a big fella and had a very quiet voice. And he'd, tell, he'd start telling a Bruce Lee story and he'd go really quiet like this. And in a big room, and we'd all be like this, you know, crawling into his ear almost. Speak up, Larry, for Christ's sake. And, uh, and he'd tell the Bruce Lee stories and we'd be like, oh, Bruce Lee. You know, it was real hero worship. And of course, as you get older, you realise that there's a man behind the story. And... And, and you try to understand the man. And that's why Richard was so interesting to me, because he knew the man. Mm. I wanted to know about the man, not just the art. Uh, and, uh, and consequently, yeah, it was a philosophy that made sense to me because you could bring all these different things together. So, so when I started to learn NLP, nonviolent communication, Tony Robbins, cold reading, all those things that I was learning, I was using the Jeet Kune Do philosophy to distill what was useful to me, but research my own experience. And this is what always drives me mad. They miss, so many people miss the first line. Research your own experience, absorb what's useful, reject what is useless, and add what is specifically your own creation. And they just think it's add specifically your own creation. But most people are numpties and don't know what is, they have no experience. Yeah. How do you know? You know, going back to the Jeff Thompson story, what is his problem? What is the cause of his ignorance? Can punch. Yeah. So once you learn that, then you have that essence of what you're trying to get to, which is the core of everything. And then what are the spindles that come off of it? Uh, and then the, the, um, the, the Filipino arts fit so nicely with the Jikundo, but that's because of Dan and Richard, really. But then there are um, those, you know, right side forward or strong side forward uh, and economy of motion, hit on the first strike, all that type of stuff all makes sense. And when I learned Dossie Paris with Danny Goober, even more it came to, to, to come together more and and uh, every every I'm very fortunate to tr basically train with world-class people my whole life and of course that helps your standard doesn't it so um, yeah that, that that's that's really it. it's the it's the whole understanding and it's the whole um, how can I push myself challenge myself more uh, and that that's really been my whole interest my whole life fantastic Let's talk about some of your competing days then. So in 94 and 96, you took the silver at the stick fighting championships. So moving back then, so you did the Jeet Kune Do, 
obviously you like that, you like the philosophy, then moved into the Filipino martial arts after that, I presume, looking at... No, same know. time. Came same time. Okay. Yeah, came same time. I mean, when I went to the Larry Haskell seminar, I taught a little bit of stick, but then I trained with Terry, Terry Barnett, and we used to train in a garage in Woodford, North London. Do a three-hour private lesson for 20 quid. Unbelievable. <laughs> Could Bargain. get the train for eight quid return as well. Yeah. It's one of the great things about being old. Everything was cheaper. <laughs> and um, and so Terry would do two hours of Jeet Kune Do and one hour of Kali. And, and that's that's what we learned. And and so it was always intrinsic together, ne never, never ever separated. So um, what would what happened over the first few years I was learning um, Filipino martial arts and Jeet Kune Do together was there was always these big gaps because there, there wasn't a desert, there was no syllabus. You know, Ralph didn't have a syllabus, or certainly I never saw one. And Ralph Jones is a fantastic, most unsung J JKD guy in the country. And I recommend you, you put him on your podcast, actually. He's a lovely, lovely guy. Goes right back before Jeet Kune Do was even known in this country. So he, he first started with, with Bob Breen. And um, so, so Ralph was very, very helpful for a long, long time. And he introduced me to stick fighting. What happened was... In the March of 1990, he had competed in the first championship. I didn't even know it existed, didn't know it happened. And then, he, and then in the August, he said, oh, there's a tournament in November. He said, it'd be nice if you had a go. I was like, at what? And he said, stick fighting. And I said, what is this? So we were in outside his house, me and a guy called Doug Tucker. We used to train together in Ralph's garage. And we had to go outside because there was no room to fight. So we were out on, the, on Ralph's driveway in armour I had never experienced this before. And he said, right, go. I thought, go where? And, and Doug started hitting me. And my response was to wrap myself around him like a spider. I was like, <laughs> now what do I do? It's just like, I didn't know what to do. Uh, and, uh, and Ralph said, no, you can't do that. So, so gradually it was introduced to me and I trained for three months and then competed in the November of 1990. There were four of us from my club and we competed and we just got hammered, you know, just like beat straight away. And then I, I competed in March and um, I, uh, I, I fought in the wrong weight division. So I learned to fight in welterweight. And uh, I didn't do very well in that one. And then there was a, a Larry Hartsell seminar at the same time as the championships later in the year. And I, I'm going to Larry Hartsell. And then I called Bob up one night um, and Bob always used to be at the academy in London. And I was talking to him and he said, look, we're having trials for the British team. Do you want to try out? He said, I think you've got some potential. Um, I think it was just buttering me up, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I went to London. I, I drove from Northamptonshire to London, shitting myself because I thought I was going to get my head kicked in. Um, and it was brilliant. And I was fit. That helped. Um, I was, my skill level was low, but we trained from, I, don't know, I think we trained for two months, I think. Yeah, about two months. And then we went to the Philippines in 1992. And this is how funny it was. We get to the Philippines. So we're all on a plane, 11 of us, 12 of us on a plane, I think 11 of us and, and Bob. And we get to the airport and then we booked a hotel. We had no hotel. We just turned up and went, can we get a hotel to do what? Oh, we're in the, we're in the Escrima Championships. And I said, what's that? Because we were in Manila and they called it Arnis in Manila. We didn't even yeah. know what Escrima yeah. was. So eventually we found this Swagman Hotel that was run by two blokes, one being an Australian. I think they were both Australian, but one used to get more progressively drunk throughout the day. So by the evening, Terry used to be smashed out of his brains and <laughs> hilarious. And the other guy used to run it. And uh, and the swagman became our, our base. And I competed and I got my first wins in the in the 90, uh, 92 championships. And and John Harvey says to me, well, you, you compete in the first one, you go back to win the second time. I thought, oh, great. Almost like it's a given. Sure, and I went, sure. I went in 94, was much more skilled by then. 
um, had a great tournament, got a silver medal. Um, and it was beaten by an English guy, uh, Reza uh, Raymond, who'd been crap the whole way through the training. It was like the laziest fucker you could ever imagine. And then in the, in the final, he turned into a demon. And I was like, oh, blimey. Anyway, it's all right. I'll do it next time. And I went back in 96 in, um, in America. And, and again, my skill level had gone up. Uh, and, um, uh, and my girlfriend had got, she'd won the world title. And I switched off mentally. I know I did. I didn't fight. I've seen the fight. It took me years to watch the fight again. I was so disappointed. But I finally watched it and I thought it could have gone either way, actually. But if I'd have been, if I'd have known all of the stuff mentally now, I'm sure I'd have won. But that was my true disappointment in terms of martial arts was never becoming world champion. You know, I trained, co I trained world champions, but I never became one. So, but, um, you know, number two in the world is not too bad. Not too bad at all, no. When did the transition happen from, um, from competing to coaching? Uh, well, it was immediate, really, because I was, I was a club, you know, I was a club coach. So, you know, once, once I'd started to learn, you know, there was Terry, uh, there was Tony Reeve, um, uh, Phil and Paul Daniels, and, and we, all, we all said, well, we're going to go for it. it. I mean, it was hilarious in our early days because we had no armour. You could Armour was a nightmare to get hold of in, in, in those <laughs> early days. You couldn't get it. So we used to train with... Um, Italian army jackets and we put pads inside the jackets and then we wear motorcycle helmets and, and, and what happened with the motorcycle helmets was pretty soon the grills would all get smashed in the plastic grills would just fly off all over the place and then what and you'd lift his arm to hit the stick and a pad would fall out and you just get hit straight across the body with a stick yeah and we, yeah. we kept thinking god this really hurts and we went to the academy and they gave us padded jackets and we thought oh maybe that's the way you're supposed to do it and then the, the, the helmets, we, um, one of the guys was quite handy with a, a welding tool and nicked a Sainsbury's trolley and cut the trolley apart and then put the grill around the, the helmet and just bolted it to the helmet. But your neck was... Always, stick fighting. Yeah, so, so then your, your neck was exposed. So sometimes you get a belt across the Adam's apple, which made you jump. <laughs> and, um, and we developed this, this uh, what was it, um, like a collar. We put this collar around it, covered in masking tape and all sorts of stuff. And that would, it was just awful. And then in 94, when we went, so for two years we competed and we had no armor. Yeah. Just ice hockey gloves. And, uh, and in 94 we went, I think we borrowed some jackets from somewhere. And then in 94, I went to the Philippines and bought some armor. And that, that really helped our progression. And between 94 and 96, we became the, the most successful club in the, U, in the UK. Wow, fantastic. Mm, that was good. It was all about learning from loss, really. You know, yeah. you just get getting beat. And the more you're, you failed, the more... My girlfriend at the time was really good at analysing videos. So she'd sit there and watch these videos and we'd talk about stuff. And she was really instrumental in not only the development of the club, but also the development as a, as a stick-fighting team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She, had, she had a great rivalry with a lady called Donna Ribbert. And because um, they didn't like each other very much, their, their skill level went up massively. Sure, and, sure. Uh, and that happened quite a bit. Me and Lee Bander are great friends now. Bloody hated each other at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. So we'd smash the shit out of each other. And um, he got one victory, I got one victory. So we always we finished our careers evens. Um, but everybody learned, you know. And then someone like Neil McLeod would come through, which was just amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pat O'Malley in the early days was a, just a fantastic fighter, really amazing fighter. And you you and then you'd see that this hold that they'd have over psychology. So Pat would come in and he would be like Muhammad Ali of that time because he would intimidate people. And then people started to realise, oh, you can do this, you can do that. And then 
everybody's time comes of being a champion as well. But Pat was consistently the best fighter for a very, very long time. And he was to be admired. I mean, he was arrogant and cocky, which helped when it came to being a fighter. Um, I, I mean, you know, me now compared to a fighter, I'm a much nicer person because all fighters are assholes. I mean, there ain't no two ways about it because they're so selfish and it's the way you have to be in order to win. But when you retire, um, you become a much nicer person, I think, because you're not trying to hold your, your level back. And, and what used to find when I was competing, I wasn't teaching certain things. And once I stopped, I'd, I'd teach everything because I didn't want anybody in my weight division to beat me. No one from my club ever beat me. So so um, my ego just wouldn't allow it. You know, it was, it was as simple as that, really. And we had some good fights. And, and, um, and of course, what happens in the club is then you become a fighter's club. And it's terrible for business. I mean, awful. Because what we do now is we train people to, to develop as a person as well as develop in their martial arts skill. Um, and, uh, and what happens is you are there for them. But when you're competing, you are there for yourself. And uh, obviously they get that. But once it, people would lose and then go, oh, I'm not training anymore. Uh, and um, noises. Um, you, you would say, but why did you start? That's not why you started. You didn't start to compete. You started to learn martial arts. Oh, yeah. And that, so that was another reason for attrition in the club. Sure. Um, let's move on then for the unified fighting systems. So this, I think you established in 1987. Is that correct? So how did this come about? And, and what was it like for you to, to establish your own kind of thing, I suppose? The UFS? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'd been at college... And these two crap black belts claimed that they were like sixth and fourth dams or something. And they, they weren't green belt level. I don't know where they got off and this stuff. And, and they used to teach at this college class. I said, I'm bloody sure I can do better than they can. And I'd been training for six years or so then. And I worked at McDonald's and, and, and uh, we used to have, it was like Cato in McDonald's. People, because we were bored all the time, people would fly out of the, out the air and attack you in, in McDonald's and you'd be doing all sorts of stuff. And we'd have fights at McDonald's you know, with the customers. That was always amusing. Um, but, um, and I, set, I thought, I'm going to set a club up. So my mate, Phil, who I'd learned the, uh, the Kempo Black Belt, we agreed we'd open this school. Anyway, he only lasted about three weeks. And then he said, I can't be asked. So I took it over. I had no Black Belt at the time. And um, I, I was walking to work one day and I, I just came up with this idea of unified fighting systems, you know, because finding a good name is hard, isn't it? It's really difficult. Definitely, yeah. For, for, for everything. And, um, and I thought, oh, okay. So, I mean, basically I do anything with three letters. So UFS, JKD, NLP, NAC, any, anything with three letters, I'll do it. <laughs> and, um, and, so, and so, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> everything else. Um, I'm probably close to WWF actually, more like a panda. And um, so, so that's how it came about. And then we started off with like six people and after a few weeks it dropped to two. But the room we had cost me two pounds to rent it. So I was never going to lose, but yeah. it, was in, it was in a pub um, or in a bar and it was on a Sunday. Now, anybody wanting to set up any martial arts school never book it from 12 till 2 on a Sunday afternoon because that ain't a good time to do it. Um, and that's what I did. So so uh, we always had low numbers. And then gradually, it sort of came together. And in 93, I went full time. I left real work and, and set up on my own. And, um, and I set up a company, which be, became No Brain No Game, which is what it is now. 
and um, and, I, and I went full time. And once I went full time, I had to make it work. It was as simple as that. You know this, you know. So um, you know, in the late uh, hang on, in the 90s, in the 90s, uh, even with the stick fighting going simultaneously, it um, it was successful, you know. It, uh, and uh, and then we were lucky enough to get the place we're in now in 1998 which is a converted room in a shoe factory. And uh, we ended up with two floors for, for about six or seven years. And then we expanded the top floor where we are now. And I'm incredibly proud of it now. It's a beautiful building. It's lovely. Yeah, I've seen and, the pictures. Um, thank you. And, and uh, last year, we, you know, with COVID, we had the chance to spend some time on it. It was, it was going to spend two weeks. But I was wise this time. I got painters and decorators in instead of me doing it all. Uh, and they did a fantastic job. And, and you don't realise how tired things look until you change it all. And then you realise all the crap that you've accepted. And I think that's true of us as well. You know, men men are great, aren't they? Because we can go through, if we've got a gate at home and it squeaks, we'll go through that gate for about five years. Oh, that squeaks. Oh, by the time you've reached the door, you've forgotten about it. I don't know if you can hear this, but... Yeah? Yeah, that's got a nice squeak on it that I've been meaning to get fixed for, oh, there you go, for about a month now, so yeah. A month? So you're, you're, you're just a beginner. I know, well. <laughs> my front door needs needs washing, and it's needed washing all for a year now, and I was just, and as soon as I walked through it, I've forgotten it, it needs washing. So so I think that's what was happening with the martial arts centre, and you don't realise it's getting tired. Yeah. Um, I mean, we got new mats down a few years ago, and it looked good. I was doing the cleaning, and I said, right, you know, Moving forward, that's not happening. I'm going to get someone who cleans properly. And so when people were allowed back in, in those glorious 15 and a half weeks that we didn't have lockdown last What a beautiful time it was. It was a beautiful time because it was all fresh. It's, it was like that scene at the beginning of Titanic where you can still smell the fresh paint. <laughs> it was just amazing. And, you know, now um, most classes I, I teach on Zoom from the martial arts school. And I'm the only one there. It's almost like it's a tragedy that it's just me there. Everybody who came back said it looks great. You know, uh, when the sun shines through as well, you know, it is like a grand design. It's just a fabulous place to be. It's, it's somewhere that you can be proud of for new people to come in because the challenge is getting new people into a martial arts school. You think of all the things that stop them from coming. They're scared. They think they're going to get a kick in. Um, they, they think that um, you're, everybody's going to be better than them. And then they come to my martial arts school and it's at the top of a forest gate. Oh my God, I'm terrified of heights. Oh my God, you know, it's this door here. What's in that place? Oh my God, it's in a crap area. You know, all that sort of stuff. You've got to get past all of that. And then they walk in, it's like the TARDIS, and they just go, shit, didn't expect to look like this. Because it looks like Cobra Kai. You know, got the nice wall <laughs> at the end. You know, it looks got that Japanese looking wall. Uh, you know, all it is is, is MDF and, and some, some nicely painted beams. But it's... It is that image that hits them. You know, we've got a sign that says, welcome to your second home. You know, it is it is that stuff that you want someone to come in and go, right, this is my place. When we put, we've got pictures up, we've got one of Richard, and then on the other wall, we've got pictures of the people who train there. So they, they have that identity that is, it might be my school, but it's your place to come. It's your place that you can learn and you can learn safely and you can have fun. And when you, if you come in, like all of us, and you've had a shitty day at work, and um, and within 15, 20 minutes, you've forgotten about that because you're concentrating on your combinations yeah. and you're trying yeah. to learn double sticks and brada, and you're like, oh my god, above, can't think of that because your brain only has so much space, you know, and then and then you're off, uh, and that's what I want it to be. I want it to be an all-encompassing, passionate environment. You come there and you are welcomed, 
you know, and none of this sitting on the, on the bench for three lessons before anyone will talk to you. You come in, what's your name? Try and remember their name straight away. Basic selling skills. I mean, it's nothing that we don't already know. And Gordon Burcham will go on and on and on about all that stuff. He's absolutely right as well. You know, when you do um, Facebook Live, try and get them involved in it. Uh, and, and I think COVID has taught us many lessons. Yeah, I think definitely. It's us, I think it's taught us uh, the most dedicated students because they're there on Zoom. It's taught us that it's easy to lose. It's taught us that we can do, you know, look, on Sunday it snowed and, and, and I couldn't run a class on Sunday. But now I can run a class on this thing. So we have missed three classes since 1987. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and so now we don't have to miss classes. We can just go, right, I'm set up in my library. I can do it here. If you want to join in that night, you can. And the kids are really like this. They're, they're really involved. And I think the parents like it because of what's, they're not a school. We give them some sense of rhythm and uh, uh, routine. And Normality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this whole thing has developed um, massively, you know, since those days where we were scratching about looking for pieces of information. Uh, and now because we are in the, um, what did Tony Robbins called it something the other day, it wasn't the information age. It's all like we've got too much information, we're just seeking wisdom all the time. So you can go on YouTube, you can learn any art you want pretty much on YouTube, or, you know, you can go on our courses and you can buy our courses and you can watch everything there. But you don't get that feeling of what it's like to have the instructor there, like I was back in the garage with Terry and with Ralph all those years ago, where you can just ask a question or sit in, you know, you're in your car and Richard Basillo, the bloke who's trained with Bruce Lee and has been in martial arts for 70 years, is sitting next to you telling you the stories. Or Kakoi Kinyeti, who was having, you know, 100 stick fights and never lost a fight, he used to say, you know, Manon, tell me about this. And he would laugh and he would tell priceless absolutely priceless and, and what endeavor can you do that is like that you know you can talk about football there's lots of great stories in football yeah, American yeah. football you know in gymnastics and stuff but martial arts does have this i think this triangle of spiritual philosophical emotional that hits us in our hearts more than anything i have ever seen um you know boxing does have it to a degree and muhammad mm -hmm. ali was a great philosopher as well as a fighter you know, um, Tyson will always talk about the history because Custom Art taught him about yeah, those yeah. things. But martial arts is so encompassing. And, and you know, any I think anybody who trains for a year and then leaves it, you know they're coming back one day because they'll always be haunted because I know my voice will be in their head somewhere one day when they're sitting watching Netflix and watching Cobra Kai, you know, and they're going, yeah. I should be doing this. This is fun, this is. And then they come back and, they, and then, because what they are is they're scared of the pain of the ache, not the punch in the face. It's the knowing that, on, you know, if they train on Tuesday, on Wednesday or Thursday morning, their legs are going to hurt. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that's where Goggin says, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, there is no growth in comfort. We all know It's a good that. thing. It means you're working. It means you're progressing. It means you're yeah, developing. 100%. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Richard Basile then, who was obviously such a huge figure in the martial arts and an absolute legend. Um, you were quite close with him. Obviously, you were, um, he was, um, yeah, you were just really close with him. So so what was he like as a person? What was he like as a teacher? Um, Do the yeah. nicest thing he ever said. We were, we went to a, um, he was teaching at Tony Pillage's place one day. And we'd had a little falling out, not a big falling out, but we just had a little falling out, friends do sometimes, in the May of 2013. And he was there in the October, of, I think it was October 
2013, and we were sitting on the sofa at Tony's, and uh, and he was teaching the seminar, but he wouldn't teach. He kept talking to me, and 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 I'm like, I ain't paying for this seminar. I said, Sifu, you got to go and talk, teach. He went, I want to talk to you. I mean, yeah, but they're paying you quite a lot of money to go and teach these guys over here. And, and and I'll be fair, it was a crap seminar because he kept talking to me. Mm-hmm. They were doing stuff, and everybody's respectful of Richard, but he said. He said to me, you're one of my closest friends. And I bet he said it to a lot of people, but I loved him for it anyway. And, um, and, he, and he was so lovely to me. I met him in 1990 when he was known as the Iron Man of JKD. And he was, he was scary. Yeah. He, was, yeah. he was in his late 40s. And um, was he 48? So 10 years younger than I am now. Almost. And, um, and he was in good shape. He'd only recently retired from Continental Airlines to go full time. And he was on his first world tour. And John Carrigan and Martin Sterling brought him over. And, um, and I was really lucky because um, they were friends of mine. And so I got to spend a little bit of time with Richard that day. And then a year later, or maybe less than that, six months later, we brought him back. And I hosted my first ever seminar. And, um, and so uh, we drove him to Ollie Bats in, in Cambridge the next day. And again, you start. And on and off, I would see him for the next few years. And then for about about 18 months, I didn't see him at all. Uh, Martin had stopped bringing him over. And I was involved in the stick fighting. And then Richard hosted the 96 World Championships. Yeah. Anyway, I had this relationship with him of, of a sort. And I wanted to train at the IMB. So on the Monday morning, me and Anne-Marie and Mark Kays, or was it just me and Anne-Marie? Yeah, all three of us. We went to the IMB on the Monday morning after training outside with the stick fighting team. And we get we got to the IMB, and, and and I kid you not, it was like turning up at Mecca. It was just because yeah. the IMB was big. I mean, a really big training facility, uh, and he let us train for like ten dollars, and we did the morning class, and he taught it. That was what amazed me. Another guy did the warm up. It was only like twelve people in the ten o'clock class, and then Richard took the class. Well, I thought he just did it because we did were there, and he didn't. It, that was the way it was. Yeah. And then I said, well, who's bringing you over? And he said, well, no one. I said, well, can I? And he said, well, these are my fees. And I went, you know, really? Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah, all right, we'll do it then. So we brought him over in 97. And it was really interesting because I'd been trying to get my apprenticeship in in, um, as a Jikando instructor for quite some time. Yeah. I'd sort of fallen out a little bit with the the Inner Santo group, me and my big mouth. And um, uh, so... You know, I wanted to get my apprenticeship. So Richard came over in 97 and he was really weird with me for a whole weekend. Like, he was always so open, very Hawaiian, very laid back. He was lovely to everybody else, but with me, he was odd. He had dinner at my house and Marie cooked for him and we had dinner and he, and, it, and that was it. And then on a Sunday night, after I took him, because I always used to take him back down to Heathrow Sunday night and, uh, and drop him off and then he kept the early flight home. And, he, and we stopped at his hotel, he said, have a drink with me. So, you know, they, they opened the bar and we sat and had a drink. And he changed like that. And I realised that what he was doing was sussing me out. He'd spent two, three days asking me all sorts of questions. How was I with my family? He wanted someone who could be reliable, was reliable to look after his operation in the UK. So I realised that's what he did. And then the next year, I got my apprenticeship certificate. I was very proud. And... Um, and uh, it sort of went on from there. And we bring him over. He introduced me to Kako. I'd met Kako in 92, but didn't really know him. 
And then he said, well, what about bringing Kakoi over? So I brought Kakoi over and then we did the um, Dossi Paris conference in 99 with the Jun Fanji Kado conference that no one else has ever done yeah. and can't yeah. anymore because they're dead. You know, it was a unique experience. And we just got close all the time. And a lot of that would come from doing tours of the UK and sitting in a car with him. Yeah, so you, just, you, you would just learn about the man and he would learn about you and he would tell me stories he wouldn't tell in seminars because they weren't for public consumption. <laughs> and, um, and gradually this bromance appeared between the pair of us. There wasn't that many years between us. I loved him to bits. Uh, and, and the night that they announced that um, he was ill, I thought they got it wrong because Kakoi died the year before. And I thought, well, he'd been with us in November of, of 2016. And, and uh, he was a bit, he was good. He, he, he had, I mean, we had a massive seminar. Bloody place was packed. And I always thought he's going to slow down and we're going to have to start going to him. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was in the end of March of 2017. And this thing popped up on Facebook. Uh, and they said, he's really, really ill. And I was like, what? And he never told anybody that he had stage four cancer. He didn't tell his wife either. He didn't tell anybody because he never wanted anybody to treat him differently because of how he'd been, the Iron Dragon, you know. And he, he was a tough guy, but he had a lovely soft heart, but he had great skills, uh, was very, very funny, and was and a gift all the time. He was always a giving man. And as he grew older, he turned into... Um, Pat Morita in The Karate Kid. You know, he became Mr. Miyagi, really. Sure, Kakoi sure. was very different. Kakoi was the most skillful martial artist I've ever met because of, of his, you know, he trained for 90 years. But Richard, Richard was the closest to the, see, Kakoi was a grandmaster, but Richard was the closest I had of an idea of a master. And I can, don't consider myself anywhere on that level whatsoever. He was time served. He'd seen it all. He knew bullshit when he heard it. He'd tell you if he knew it. He had great stories. He had great skill. Um, and everybody you spoke to, there were a thousand people at his funeral, put it that way. Incredible. Really incredible moment. So he was great. He was great. And, and part two of, because you know, I, I wrote this this book. I don't know, so this is Punch of I don't know if it's going, is this going out on? It's going to order, isn't it? Yeah, anyway. well, yeah. No, it'll go on video as well. So, okay, yeah. okay. So Punch of My High was my, my, Personal History of Jeet Kune Do, Volume 1. And I didn't know it was going to be Volume 1 until I realised the bloody book was getting too big. So Part 2 is now four years out of date, or four years late, but I want to write it because there's going to be a lot of stuff about Danny and Kakoi and Richard in there. Um, there's quite a bit about Richard in Punching Above My Height, but we want to talk more about the, the development of Philippine martial arts and how Dusty Perez came about, because the whole story of how Danny ended up in the UK is hilarious in itself. Um, but because of all the stuff that Kakoi told me, I want to share that. You know, Anton St. James is doing Kakoi stuff down in down in Portsmouth. And then there's there's me, you know, there's uh, you know, still promoting this amazing martial arts uh, guy that so many people have never heard of. And, and YouTube is so funny. When you see a clip of Kakoi and they go, oh, yeah, I've done a double leg takedown. Do you know what, mate? In the 50s and in the 40s, he was the toughest man. You know, he was, he was comparable to every one of the tough guys. You know, and he was out there doing it with stick. You know, if you got your head bashed in, that was it. And he had a hundred fights, and he was never beaten. You know, it's a, it's a record that's unbelievable. He he transcended everything really. You know, when um when the way the warrior came on in the nineteen eighties, they focused on Kakoi Kinetti. In the book, there's at least like two paragraphs, but there's a whole episode to Kakoi and Dossi Perez. 
And that made me want to learn more about the weapons as well. You know, these little clips that they put in, like in the, in the Kung Fu version, there's a little clip of, of Dan and, and uh, Chris Kent is in it and uh, Cass Magda. But they dedicated a whole episode to Kakoi because he, he's a warrior, a proper warrior. And I'm so fortunate to have been able to train and know these people. But the weirdest experience of my life was when we did the Dossie Paris conference in 1999, um, Kakoi used to stay with my girlfriend's mum's at her house because he didn't like hotels. He wanted he liked homely. And sure, he was sure. there for two weeks. To, you know, it cost a fortune at a hotel, but it, you know, I'd chuck it, I'd chuck um her mum a couple of hundred quid or whatever it was, and she'd look after him for two weeks. And he loved it. And this one day I walk into Amory's mum's house, and Kakoy and Richard are sitting drinking tea together in the kitchen. And me, that's like Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger are sitting in my girlfriend's mum's kitchen in Kettering. How did that happen? Yep. You know, to yep. me, that was I was starstruck. It was really, really weird. Um, and, and, and I just, I didn't get a picture of it. That's what I asked, stupid am I? Because we all the bloody, we didn't have, we had proper cameras there. So we got lots of pictures of them together at the, at the event, but not in our kitchen that day. And it wouldn't have been lovely if I'd have just filmed it. It would have been brilliant. But it's in my head. And I still have that memory. And that is the most surreal moment I've ever had in martial arts. Most definitely. Uh, Lucci's asked the question, and he'll kill me if I don't ask you it, but uh, the story about doing an underground seminar uh, <laughs> in a car right. park, was it? It was in a car park. Yeah. It was this guy called Martin Sterling, who, who Lucci used to work for. And Martin was the biggest rogue I've ever met in martial arts. The only person close was Tony Pillage. Okay. Um, but Martin and Tony were cut very much on the same cloth. Brilliant marketers. Um, although Martin was probably worse than Tony with money. <laughs> okay. So, so, so he, he he set up this place in the, he that he hosted the first Basilo. So he had Jerry Petit there. He had uh, um, Tim Tackett there. He had all sorts of people. Sorry about these things. Messages come through. Cool. And. Um, so he said to Richard, look, he said, I've hosted your seminars before. Some people say, you know, it's, it's a bit of a watered down version that you're doing safe. Can we do like the dirty, nasty, gritty JKD? Richard said, yeah, sure, of course we can. So he did it in an underground car park in the building they were in. So it must have been 60, 70 people there. They got the TV cameras down there as well. And, and Richard came down and they were all... Here we go, here we go. We've got it's gonna be like fight club, you know, it's gonna be like <laughs> and Richard came out, started doing Paxel Lobsell. And we all went, what's he doing? And he did exactly the same seminar that he did wherever it was. You know, so so he did, we never saw the dirty, gritty, nasty, because Richard weren't weren't daft enough to know that we were gonna get hurt people and slam them in the concrete and all that sort of stuff, which all the mental cases like Lucci and me and all those guys, <laughs> Richard Hudson, we were all like, Yeah, let's do all the nasty stuff, poke people in the eyes, kick them in well, the balls. And so we were all, but it was a brilliant time. And we all got these nice t-shirts. I still got my polo shirt. And it was uh, from Jonathan Livingston Seagull because Martin was a big philosopher guy as well. And we did this unique under, under in a car park, dusty, dirty, all sorts of stuff. Um, car park in Nottingham under, under the, under, you know, in the, almost in the dark, but it was, I, I must have a picture somewhere of it. I'm sure I have. And some of the other guys might have it as well. But it really was funny because, yeah, yeah, we're going to do all this. He came out and just went, pack sale, lock sale. It's <laughs> not he did anyway. Because you, could, you, couldn't, you couldn't tell Richard what to do, but you could draw stuff out of him. 
Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I might say, um, you know, you never teach Villabrow Carly. Um, I'd love to see how that compares with Dossie Paris, you know, like in Stick and Dag. Hey, oh, yeah, we can do that. And then you go and do it. But if you said, Richard, we teach Philippina Villabrow, he wouldn't do it. Yeah. Was, yeah. Um, I'd having a chat with Bob Breen once, and he said, there are two types of people. There's people you push and people you pull. And I'm a person you pull. Because if you push me, I will just resist. Yeah. But if you encourage me, um, I, will, I will do it. Uh, one time we, we were training for the um, in the British team, and and Amory used to react if you shouted out go go and go mad. She used to react if you shouted at me, it made me laugh. I just like pack it in, will you? It's just killing me laughing. You had to say, look, if you do a little bit more of that, you'll do this, and and that was the way. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Richard, Richard was someone you pulled. You didn't push him. Perfect. Let's talk about then. So obviously, being a martial artist, you are now also a publisher for oh, yeah. books. Uh, with 3P Publishing. As I've said, we went through Martial Masters Volume 1 with you guys. Yeah. Did an absolutely fantastic job with it. We loved it. Everyone loved it. So, yeah. How did that all come about and why did you decide to go into publishing books? Well, interestingly, um, I had tried to write books. I wanted to write a book since I was eight. Started and didn't finish it. And I got serious in my 40s and I couldn't finish anything. You know, one, one story I started was about a guy who was, I, I became a big fan of Darren Brown about 20 years ago. Yep. I was lucky enough to meet him, went into the magician's world, learned a guy from cold reading from a guy called Ian Rowland who had taught Darren how to do cold reading, did loads of great things. I thought, wouldn't it be good if like a, a cold reading magician type mentalist started working with the police? And I started to write this story and then I gave up on it. And about a year later, the mentalist came on TV and I'm like, shit, I could have written that. That could have been mine. That could have been mine, but I, I, it wasn't because I never finished it. But what did happen was I wrote this little book called The Magic Number. And interestingly, I wrote it in a house that's like 200 yards from here. It's like in that bedroom there. That's why I wrote this book. And I was doing a talk and I had the opportunity to sell from the stage. And the year before, I told a DVD and a video, uh, a DVD and a CD. And I didn't have anything to sell. So I thought, I'll write a book. And I wrote this. It's like 130 pages or something about how to make your life work in 90 minute, uh, 90 day chunks. Um, and I wrote it in three weeks. We printed it in a week and it was all done. The whole thing was done in four weeks. Wow. Don't ever do that. It's a really stupid way to write a book. <laughs> it had so many typos. It was unbelievable. And it wasn't this cover. It was a different cover. Yeah. And then I've, gone back, I've edited this three times since then. That's how many times it needed doing. I had done it and I had finished a book and I thought, mm, that's really interesting. So the next time I thought, well, I'm going to write another book. So what can I write a book on? So I came up with this, which is called How to Seduce Your Wife or Anyone Else's. Now I'm getting married this year. I'm going to have to write one called How to Seduce Your Wife. Now I've got one. So, so, <laughs> the sequel. Yeah, the sequel. So I came up with this idea and uh, I still think it was, it was a good idea, but I wanted to do it right. I wanted an ISBN number. How, where'd you get them from? And, and anyway, so I found out where you got them from. And then I started to think, well, how are we going to do it? And um, so over the 14 months, it took me to write the book, edit the book and everything else, um, get the cover done right, because that's a, I still like that cover. It's a good cover, yeah. Um, just so you know, that's my hand. Which one? The one that looks Nice nails. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the male hand. Yeah, that's the one, <laughs> that's the one Dan. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Kimmy who is, is the belly. She's actually done two other covers for us. She's great. She's done three of our covers. And um, so I wanted to do it properly, you know, and I wanted to sell a lot of books. That was the idea. Anyway, then I started to think, well, how do you seduce your wife? What about if you switch that as a business idea 
So seduction became a business concept. How to seduce your customers or anyone else's? Okay, that could actually go. And um, I was very fortunate that I had this friend of mine called Caroline Snelling, who um, I, I convinced to become my business partner. I mean, she's regretted it loads of times since. <laughs> but we did this without any knowledge of running a publishing company. But we set it up. We did a big book launch. We had a mass ball. We did the whole thing. Spent way too much money on it. Got in the national press. Got in all sorts of stuff. Went around the world. I mean, the Times of India. All sorts of things. And it became a relative success. You know, it did all right. And, uh, and, then, and then it made me think, well, hang on. If I've got all these questions, there must be loads of people who don't know how to do this and never researched how to publish a book. Just did it, uh, you know, just came up with ideas. And then I started to think, well, if we treat authors like they would like to be treated, like getting a fair return on their books. I mean, you know, because you're now doing Marshall Masters through, uh, through Amazon, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And what's this retailing about? 12 quid or whatever. Yes. Man. You're going to get about three to three pound fifty out of that, aren't you? Yeah. Whereas with us, you were getting that full amount. And I know the reasons why you're doing it through Amazon and their distribution and everything else. And we just thought, you know, authors are getting them stiffed by Amazon. Can we do something better? And it's developed, really. So um, in, in time, I've written another two books. I wrote the, the martial arts one, and then I wrote a book about how to write books, which is called Top of the Pile. That one there. Yeah. And we've done over 70 books now. And we've got, we've got um, authors in America and Australia and Spain and obviously lots in England. It's all yeah. to do with helping people to bring their book out in a way that A, they get financially re um, recompensed for it. And all the copyright is theirs. I remember this is a, a question you asked me and, and Lucy yeah. asked me right at the beginning, who owns the copyright? Well, you do, you wrote the bloody book. We don't want your copyright, we wanna help you. And if we do a good job, you come back and do other books with us. And that's happened many times since. So um, it was done from, from ignorance really. Um, you know, a naivety that um, even now staggers me. Because if we'd have realised how many people publish books, we'd have probably never done it. But uh, and it took a while to, to establish, you know, it, it, um, a lot of work from Caroline as well, helping me. She is um, the background person who does all of the accounts. She does all the admin stuff. She does all the things that makes a business work, puts process into place. I am the blustery guy up the front who, who does the videos, um, you know, does the selling, understands the marketing. But if we're a very yin yang couple as far as the business is concerned, Which um, I'd, I'd have never done it without. Her. And now we've got a team of ten that work with us. So, you know, um, we are, we've been very fortunate in the people who work with us. And as I said earlier, before we came on this, we've been very fortunate because of COVID, because people are out there writing books. Well, exactly. Like the the rise in people putting off or having projects that they put off for however many years etc and then mm -hmm. now have, have kind of found this time where they can now put their projects into use i suppose and get them finished yeah. or get them published or get them you know um online or do whatever they want to do with them what would be some like what would be advice from you i suppose for anyone that's interested or has maybe got an idea for a book or maybe yeah. they've got half a book done or a quarter of a book done or whatever but they've just got that initial little spark yeah. of wanting to do something with it well, let's talk about the writer part first. So, so you go back to advice from Ernest Hemingway, and he always said, just keep going. He said, what happens is, is, is that you start to doubt your belief, like I did with the mentalist story. Oh, no one's going to read that. So you stop writing. 
Uh, and the only way to finish it is get on and do it. Give yourself deadlines. That works really well. And work to the deadlines. If you just ignore the deadlines, what's the point? But like with a magic number, I had three weeks to write that. And, and I had that. I did the same thing with um, Top of the Pile, but I had a team behind me by then to do to help me. I had five weeks to write that. And yeah, some of it was already written, but we had a cover design. We had so much. I wouldn't recommend you write that fast. You can if you want, but know that someone out there will want to read your work. And that is true of everything. I mean, yes, yes. there isn't any book that won't be written, uh, read. It doesn't mean lots of people will read it, but it does mean there'll be a book that's, that's read. So there's always a market for a book, but only if the author believes in it to start with. Now, once you understand that that's it, you write your book, you have, you have your manuscript and you send it to us and you agree to work with us. That's only part of the deal. Because the first part of the deal is writing the book. The second part is publishing the book. And if you come yeah. with a company like ours, we take care of that. You don't have to worry about that. That's all done and dusted. You've played with Amazon. They're bastards, aren't they? They are bastards, yeah. It, it really is hard, <laughs> isn't it, to try yeah. and make it work. They don't make it easy at all. Right. But you give it to us. We take care of it. There is no stress at all. We look after you, and we will continue to look after you. Because the next part is marketing. That's your third part. Don't do marketing. No one knows your book comes out. And then finally, there's a selling of it, which means to, that someone, and this is where the respect for the reader comes in, that when you produce a book like this, and it's got like 160 pages in it, full of good advice, costs $7.99, uh, an average person will read that in anywhere between a, you know, a few days and a month. Yeah. yeah. So you are asking for that reader's time, but you're also asking for $7.99 in times when it's, not, when it's uncertain. Mm -hmm. So you're asking for their money and their time. So you must respect the, the, the reader. And then as you respect that reader, you, in yourself as a writer, you follow Raul Dahl's advice, which is write something that someone wants to finish. Because Raul Dahl's advice, uh, thought, was always, if someone gets to page 94, puts it down. You know, that's, that's, that's not what you want. You want them to go, mm, why do you write to elicit emotion? You want someone to cry or laugh or be scared or be passionate or want to know more. That's why you write. And, and, and these arts that we do, the martial arts and the writing arts, are all about passion. It's all about getting an idea across that when you do something, when we teach, we teach with passion. Eddie Quinn talks about this a lot. Yeah, that if yeah. you teach without passion, stop teaching because you are a waste of time and you're wasting your students' time, which again is respect to the student, isn't it? Completely. But when you go into the class, I never plan classes. I mean, hardly ever. Because yeah. every time I plan one, the wrong audience turns up. You know, you, you know oh, shit, I've got to do that now. Um, but when you teach with passion, you get the message across. When you write with passion, when you sell with passion, this is, this is it's one of the toughest parts of, of me helping authors. They produce something they're proud of and then they don't want to tell anybody about it. And yet there are people out there who are writing shit and selling millions of books. Fifty Shades of Grey. That is exactly the... <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey is the best example of hope as a writer. Now, E.O. James is a very, very smart woman. She's also a very rich woman. She knew her niche, she knew her market, she understood the business, and she went for it. Tick, 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 done, let's go. And yet, we have people who are proud of their books, you know, you're going to write number two of Martial Masters, 
Yeah. Your goal is not to sell a hundred books. Your goal is to sell as many books as you possibly can. You know, you've already said we've got great, we've got great people in here. Let me just look in here. I can't remember the interviews. Look, we've got Scott Caldwell, not alive anymore. This is yep. this is making him immortal. Tony Pillage, not alive yep. anymore. This is making him immortal. We're not saying if you go to Dan and Lucci, you're gonna die. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> what we are talking about What's is this let's space? get your message out there. Eddie Quinn's in it, Phil Norman's in it, Bob Breen's in it, Andy Norman's in it. You will live forever. You know, it's our tagline and our thing. We will make you immortal. You know, um, Graham, um, who, who, who died a few years ago, we made him immortal. And Terry, um, Terry Clemson and Tony Pillage. Once, once you have a book, people will always know you existed. You will always know you're there. You don't have to keep going on about it. If they want to learn about you, you will be there. Um, and, you know, you can delve into, you know, us now. We can go into the writings of A.A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh, uh, books that were written 100 years ago and are still selling in massive numbers as Amy Blyton, as our Roald Dahl, as our Ian Fleming, all these great writers. And you you are taken into a world you never saw before. Yeah. Now, can yeah. you compete with that as an author? Well, you can actually, because if you speak to your audience, your audience will love you. Ross Edgley's books are really, really good. I've never even yeah, heard yeah, of them until like, two months ago. Yeah. You know, and, and yet I have been bowled over by what the man did and now I am a fan and that's all we want is people to be fans of us as teachers and of as writers because if we if they if they love what we do we can give more back can't we yeah. I've just yeah. done the Tony Robbins thing for the last five nights you know I did my UPW 18 19 years ago and he's still out there still banging it still knocking in thousands and thousands of like was it 596,000 people on the on the thing that he did the other day? Yeah, yeah. He knows exactly what he's doing. You know he's going to get that the paid is going to come to because they're going to love his stuff and they become fans. Last night after my class, I clicked on Instagram and David Goggins was live on an Instagram. Oh, what's David Goggins live? That's fun. It was fun, you know. And it, you know, I was lucky enough to meet him. There was only when he came over two years ago. The only martial artist I knew was me and Paul Coleman. We met him, and that all these people want to meet David Goggins. Well, why didn't you go to Burton Pass then? <laughs> no, you just didn't go, did you? You know, and, and that was I wanted to talk to him, ask my questions. I did. I met the guy because I wanted to get close to what is real, yeah, the essence yeah. of what we do. And so everything must come from passion. Most definitely. Perfect. Have you got any final thoughts for us then, Andy? Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for for doing this i mean we said 45 minutes and you let me go with my time so thank you for that from start with of course no it's been sure super you're, interesting. You're edit, edit stuff out or whatever you want to do so so the first thanks is to you um and and also you know i've known luti a long time through going back to the martin days as well uh you know i've seen i've seen how he's changed i've seen what he's doing with his passion for kaizen yeah, um, yeah. it comes back there you know that the, we don't even know. We're hoping we can do it in June, July, whenever it is. I forget what it is now. Fingers crossed, yeah. That it can be done. That he's, he's, he's trying to do something that is special. We saw it with Senny and we saw it with the martial arts show that Quatlin did. It's not easy to keep pushing this stuff. Okay. And there are people out there who, as a student, go and look at the people who've been around a long time. Because they've been out there a long time and they're still high profile because they have something that most people don't have. The Bob Greens of the world, the John Harveys the Ralph yeah. Joneses, all these guys that I have known for years and years and years. I mean, Rick Young is still up there, still looking absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah. you know, I think he's around my age, 50, late 50s, early 60s yeah. or whatever yeah. he is. Bloody hell, just always been the top JKD guy in the UK, always. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and when you compare them with what we see in America, so much of the, of the UK guys have superseded what they were doing because we were taught by good teachers and we love the arts. And, and ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Um, that when you, um, when, you, when you train, I'll tell you one thing I would say, actually. Keep a training log. I tell my students to log their training and they go, oh, yeah, they do it for like a month and then don't do it. And then when you come back and look at your data, because this is what I've learned through running a business, your business yeah, yeah. will be judged upon the data. So when we look at our, we have, we have targets we have to hit every month or we aim for every month. And if you don't have targets to hit in your training, how do you know when you're drifting? You know, I've done it as well. You know, you can go, you know what? I think, I think I'm running like uh, 20 miles a week. And then you look at your training log and it says, no, you're doing 15. Yeah, yeah. Now you do that over 50 weeks, then you are many, many miles off where the target was. Mm -hmm. So set yourself challenges, have a training log, be true to yourself, you know, always be respectful of your teachers and your students uh, and love the arts, really. That's what I would say. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Andy. Really appreciate it. So that was Andy Gibney, um, obviously JKD instructor, um, stick fighting champion and co-founder of 3P Publishing as well. It's been another episode for The Marshall View. You can follow us on all of our social media platforms. If you want to see our faces, you can check us out on YouTube. Otherwise, you can check us out on Spotify and all the other podcast channels. Um, and Marshall Masters that we've talked about a little bit today as well. That's now available on Amazon with volume two available in the spring of 2021. Fingers crossed, as long as Amazon still aren't bastards. So don't <laughs> hold your breath. Cool, thank you again, Andy. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you.